Welcome to the Foundations of Sports podcast, where our game plan is to present positive sports stories that lead to championships on and off the field, and the people who lead by character, hard work, and humility. I'm your host, Chris Horgan, and thank you for joining us. We hope you're doing well, and we're excited and grateful to kick off season number two with Coach Johnny Parker. Coach Parker started his journey in teaching and coaching at Indianola Academy in Mississippi in 1969. From there, he coached for 10 years at the collegiate level, including working for Coach Lee Corso and Coach Bobby Knight at Indiana University, where he became the first strength and conditioning coach in the Big Ten. In addition, he coached at South Carolina, Louisiana State University, and his alma mater, Ole Miss. A conversation between Coach Knight and Coach Bill Parcells led Coach Parker to the New York Football Giants, where he became an integral part of the 1986 and 1990 Super Bowl teams. After the Giants, he went on to the New England Patriots, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and the San Francisco 49ers. In the episode, Coach Parker discusses a life-changing moment while coaching 7th and 8th grade girls basketball that changed his outlook and set the foundation for his coaching career. He talks about his time at Indiana University and provides great insight into what led to the success of the New York football giants. We discuss how trips to Russia and Staten Island, New York made him a better strength coach, as well as the importance of his mentors that paved the way for him. Throughout the interview, humility, character, and hard work come through in everything Coach Parker speaks about, and he provides so many words of wisdom, which helps anyone looking to learn and become better in any endeavor. Enjoy the episode with Coach Parker. Coach Parker, welcome to the Foundations of Sports podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. I've looked forward to this, and I have great respect for what your your aims and goals are with your podcast. So uh, I'm just I'm humbled and privileged to be a part of it. Uh, thank you, Coach, and we're, we're certainly humbled to have you on the show. Tell us how you started your journey as a strength coach. Oh. Coach, I'm going to tell you, that is a tough story because when I first started, I wanted to be a teacher. I had no real desire to be a coach, but in Mississippi, salaries were so low that men that teach usually have to coach. So one of my assignments was seventh and eighth grade girls basketball. And coach, I can say without fear of contradiction that I was the worst coach in the history of the sport. Oh. <laughs> I didn't play basketball. I hadn't, I didn't know anything about basketball and there's no shame in that, but I didn't try to learn. And there's a lot of shame in that. So I didn't even know how to conduct a practice. And they were just, they weren't even organized chaos. They were just disorganized chaos. We, we lost our first game 51 to 9. Oh, wow. 51 to 9. And he pulled the, the starters at halftime. Oh, he could wow. have got 100 if, in six, I'm sorry, four six minute quarters. They could have easily, I think, for sure, gotten 80. But and we were just so poorly coached that I made a substitution while the other team was shooting free throws, and the little girl <laughs> put in there went out and stood right in front of the free throw shooter with her hands up. She was guarding the free throw shooter. <laughs> the, the official had to show her where to line up. But anyway, 
coach. It's a good cover two defense. That's exactly what that was. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, coach, at Thanksgiving, all the other basketball teams at school had practice. And since we were the worst team, I feel, well, we better have one too. So on the Saturday morning after Thanksgiving, we get to school, and I realize I don't even have a key to the gym. No way to get in the gym. And so I sent the girls out scouting, and on the playground there at the school, they found an undersized, underinflated basketball, and that's what we practiced with. There was a, on the tennis court, there was an old goal that didn't even have a net. Well, I don't, it was chilly and breezy, and I don't think that had anything to do with it. I don't think we made a shot the entire practice. Well, little girls would come up to me during practice and say, hey, Coach, can I have a ride home? And, of course, sure, be glad to. Then one little girl, Cindy Courtney, she had the most devilish little grin on her face. She said, Coach Parker, can I have a ride home? Of course. And Coach Parker, she had kind of a conspiratorial tone. Coach Parker, take me home last. I thought, all right, I don't know what this is about, but okay. So Coach practice ended. Nobody got any better or anything because I didn't know anything to teach them. But we piled into my little Volkswagen Beetle. And Coach, I'm telling you, there were arms and legs coming out the windows. There were so many girls in there. So we... We'd go to somebody's house, they would unpack, that girl would get out and so forth. And finally, we got to where it was just Cindy, Courtney, and myself. And as we got close to her house, Cindy said, Coach Parker, pull up, pull up in the driveway. Well, her house was set back from the road about you know, 25 yards, so I pulled up. And then as we got closer to the house, Cindy said, Coach Parker, see? And... Well, it was obvious what she was talking about because of the fresh dirt. It was a new basketball goal. And Cindy said, Coach Parker, I got mom and dad to get me this as an early Christmas present. Now, Coach, I didn't know it at that moment. But my life, as I knew it, had about a minute to go. Then she said, Coach Parker, I come home and I practice every day till dark. And then the, the, just the bottom fell out of my life. She burst into tears, just exploded into tears. And she said, Coach Parker, I mean, her, you know, her nose was running, the tears running down her face, just shaking inconsolably. And finally, she was able to kind of get out. Coach Parker, I want to be good so bad, but you never worked with me. Coach, that was the end of my life as I knew it. And she was right. I didn't work with her because I didn't know anything to teach her. And I was about that bad as a classroom teacher that first year. And I can't tell you whether it was that moment, that day, that week, or when, but pretty soon I made a vow that for the rest of my life, nobody who ever depended on me for anything would ever be able to say, Coach Parker, I want to be good so bad, but you never work with me. 
That was by far the biggest thing that's ever happened in my life, by far the biggest influence on my coaching career. And from then on, I knew that I had to be the best I could be. I might not be very good, but it would be the best I could be. And I started reading books, going places. I got my master's in history uh, so I could you know, have a better knowledge base to help become a better teacher. I went to colleges and universities all over the South and Southwest, pro teams, you name it, to, to learn. And were it not for Cindy Courtney, I might have just still been, you know, just a guy that just getting by. And she she changed my whole life. Because that was that was not only the beginning of my journey, that was kind of that was the journey. Because ever since then, I have never been satisfied with giving my players or students less than my best and maybe of equal importance. I know that a goal mine had to be to determine as quickly as I could what they were capable of and demand that every day, demand it every single day. That's the way I coached. That's the way I taught. It wasn't always fun, but I wouldn't change one bit of it. Kids need to learn at some point in their life how to do the best they can at something. So whether it's in my history class, whether it's in football, Whether's in the weight room, they the principles of doing your best are the same no matter what. Whether you're in your career, whether you're in school, whether you're raising kids, whatever, the principles are the same. And I thought it was my obligation to teach them that. And as you continue to learn, Coach, you spoke about the impact of one of your first coaching clinics and what went on there. Tell us the story about that. Certainly. Certainly. The University of Tennessee, you know, they were really good in football at that time. And they had just hired a new coach named Bill Battle, who had played at Alabama and was later on athletic director at Alabama. But he was 28 years old, youngest head coach in the, in the country. Well, as you know, Tennessee, the University of Tennessee is in Knoxville, which is tucked away up in the far eastern corner of the state. And like Memphis, the biggest city in the state, is over 400 miles away. A Tennessee booster in Jackson, Tennessee, sponsored a clinic where the Tennessee staff came down to Jackson so that they could develop rapport with coaches in the western part of the state. Well, we uh, we drove up to that clinic. That was my first one. And, of course, I didn't know any of the stuff that they were talking about. And a lot of it I've forgotten. But the one thing that I have never forgotten is when Coach Battle said, if your kids could be with you four years and not be better people, you're in the wrong profession. That was a powerful moment or or statement in my life, and it just convinced me all over again what my obligation was to my students, to set a moral and ethical example for them, demand their best, at all times, you know, and coach, sometimes that's cruel. You know, sometimes, you know, a student might not do their best on a test. And, oh, well, Coach Parker, oh, I had a bad cold last night. And I would tell them, I'm not interested in your excuses. I'm not interested in that. 
All I'm interested in is your best. So, and Coach, I've got to share this with you, that the year after I left high school coaching and, you know, I decided to start taking some of the college job offers I was getting, I went to the University of South Carolina, and just one day there in the fall, phone rang, and it was a sophomore English teacher at the school where I had taught and coached. Well, I had in the classroom, I had taught ninth graders. And so obviously this next year, they were sophomores, and they were in her English class. She said, Coach Parker, I thought you would want to know this. I had my four sections of sophomore English write an essay on the person in their life who had the biggest influence on them. It could be a parent. It could be a person in history. It could be somebody they never met. Be anybody. She said 56 out of 94 wrote on Coach Parker. Hey, Coach, I don't say this. Uh, you know, there's no ego involved in that. There's nothing bragging. It's just, you know, I was so stunned, and even now I'm stunned as I recount it to you, but she's, I didn't know what to say, and finally I just said, well, Ms. Holloway, what did they say? And she said, Coach, the general message theme was that he cared enough about us to make us do our very best. So, the only reason I tell you that is, is because I know that kids then, kids now, kids a hundred years from now, want to have somebody believe in them and care about them enough to demand their best. And if the ones that resist it are the ones that want and need it the most, they just want to see if you care enough to say no and make it stink. One of the important things you always speak about, talk about coaching, is they need to know that you care before you even coach them, that, that, that you have to coach the person. Absolutely. And that, that tribute, in terms of those letters, and very humbling, but that is the definition of showing that you care. It's just not about wins and losses, you're not defined by a scoreboard. You're defined by the impact that you have on others. And certainly you have done that. And to this day, you continue to do that. Well, I don't know about that, but I mean, it was certainly what I tried very hard to do. And I will, I will say this, though, that one thing that, that kids have to know that you care, but you can't just tell them. You know, you can't just say, I will care about you. I will, I know I'll end up loving you like I always do with my kids. You, you can't just tell them. You got, to, you got to live it. And you've got to be invested in their success. And as I would tell players, that your success is your own. I'll just be in the crowd cheering you on. But your failure, I accept as my own. I will accept, I'll accept no credit, but I'll take all the blame if things don't go right. And, um, you know, I, I, let me say this, though, about not being defined by a school board. That is true. But 
there is this little caveat that kids need to seek some success or else there's a good chance they'll reject a lot of what you're trying to teach them. So, you know, you go 0 and 10, you know, then your players might say, and probably would, hey, I tried all this loyalty stuff and all this dedication, teamwork, and look what it got us. Shoot. Man, I can go 0 and 10 without that. The heck with all loyalty stuff. So they need to see success from what you're trying to get them to do. They do that, and, it, and the success is different for different people. You know, it, with my students, you know, when I tr- tried to determine as quickly as I could wh- what they were capable of, you know, for some, that might be a C. And then when they made us a C, and I knew that was all they could do, then, man, I bragged on them as though they had you know, just graduated magna cum laude. Success is different for different people. You know, they, all the football players aren't going to be stars. But as long as the kid is doing the best he can, then you got to, to praise and reward that. You really brought that out in your athletes, uh, being the best, doing the best. And from your statements you took ownership and you also taught them to take ownership in their own success, in their own work ethic, and also the principles that you taught them in the weight room, on the field, all translate into being a good person, a good teammate later on in life, even when you move on from that particular sport. Well, they're kids. Of course, they're no longer kids. They're kids to me, but if they tell me, uh, you know, how things that, you know, we tried to do that they have been guiding principles with them in raising their kids or in running their business or, or whatever. And, and Chris, that is so gratifying just to think, you know, that you, that you weren't just here on this planet, sucking up oxygen that somebody else could have used a lot better. <laughs> I think this too, that, you know, the quality of a person's life, and I'm not saying there's been any quality to mine, but at least I've tried, but the quality of any person's life, I think, is you can kind of measure by the footprints they leave. If if they leave footprints on the beach that are just washed away with the first little wave that comes comes in, then you really hadn't done anything. But if your footprints are left in cement and they last and they weather the storms, then, you know, your life has been worthwhile. So, again, I'm not saying that that's what I've done, but it's, it's what I hope that I've done or, or again, try very hard to do. Well, you certainly ha- have done that. And uh, your journey took you throughout the country, through the NCAA and the NFL and one of your stops was at Indiana University, where you coach for both Coach Lee Corso and Coach Bobby Knight. Describe that experience working with both of them. Ooh, let me tell you. First of all, the Coach Corso you see on college game day, that's him. <laughs> he's not acting. He's not performing. He's just being himself. You go into his office to, you know, to 
talk to him. You know, he maybe called me in or I needed to see him about something. First of all, he wore a coat and tie to work every day, which is, you know, that's kind of unusual. But anyway, Coach Corso might be sitting at his desk for a few seconds, and then he'll jump up and start pacing around the room. And, you know, I wanted to try to keep eye contact with him, but, you know, you're sitting in front of his desk, and he's over here behind you, then on this side, back behind his desk over here, constantly. Then he might jump down on the floor and do 10 sit-ups and then get up and to walk around some more and then do 10 push-ups. What a non-stop, man. And then before the games, while the team was out warming up, there was a little area off the off the field there where the you know the big boosters had uh, a lunch before the games. Coach Corso would come in and talk to them. Now this might be twenty or thirty minutes before kickoff. He would come in and talk to them and have them rolling in the floor. <laughs> now everything I've said about Coach Corso, you can. Just kind of take the opposite with Bob. He was dead serious all the time. Bob, for a long time, was probably the best coach of any sport in America. One time when I studied in in Russia and we were at the uh, basketball training facility of the Red Army Sports Club in Moscow, I saw a couple of their coaches. They had on Indiana jackets or shirts. And I asked them, you know, who was the best basketball coach in America? They, they both said Bob Knight. Bob, in a conversation with Coach Parcells, you know, they're very good friends. They go back to the Army days together when Coach Parcells was the uh, an assistant football coach and Bob was uh, the head basketball coach. Became head basketball coach at Army at the age of 24. It was Bob just in a conversation with Coach Parcells. Coach Parcells said that he had been interviewing some people for strength coach, hadn't found anybody that he liked, and Bob, with his usual set way, just butted in and said, well, I'll tell you who you ought to go after. And just fortunately, it was me. And so I owe Bob a, a great, great debt of gratitude. Great debt of gratitude, and he knows it. And he, I thanked him. I used to write him a letter every year at the beginning of training camp, thanking him for what he had, you know, for sticking his neck out for me. But the most intense person that you will ever meet, ever, I don't care who you know or what or anything, they are not as intense as Bob. And I think Bob liked me because I would come back at him. You know, he always had to have the upper hand, and, and shoot, I was scared of him too. But I would, I would come back at him, and he, uh, he you know, he wouldn't grin. He would admit, you know, "Hey, you got me." But apparently, he liked that. But anyway, great coach. He and Coach Corso are both tremendous coaches. Yeah, and you never know where the journey of life is going to take you. Like you said, he. Coach Knight recommended you to Coach Parcells, and that's how you got the uh, job with the Giants. It, it's amazing, and you know something that that we talk about, you know, in all sports is you got to do your best all the time because yes. you never know where that's going to lead you. You never know who's watching or who's taking notes, 
And the connection there, I, I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm really blown away about that. Well, you know, Chris, I, I tell young coaches, you know, they ask about how can I move ahead in the profession? And one thing I tell them is that you're writing your resume every day and that you've got to treat whatever your job is. You've got to treat it like it's the most important job in the world. And it's the last job you'll ever have. I really believe that. You know, if you're working at one job with your eye on the next one, you ain't going to do very good at the one you have. And chances are you won't get that next one either. So, you know, you never know who's looking, who, you know, who's watching and, and who they know. So that's not the reason to do your best. You owe that to your players. But it, it is, I guess, one benefit possibly of doing your best. You Got to be present. And where you are, like you said, and uh, it's so important. And when you arrived at the the Giants, you and Coach Parcells were certainly present in forging the toughness of the Giants in the weight room. Tell us a little bit about when you arrived and what occurred from that point. Well, first of all, I was scared to death. <laughs> Those guys, I I don't really know but one way to do it, and that's kind of a you know a hardcore way. And I thought, you know, those guys might run me back to, to Mississippi the first day. But I was lucky in that I had had Leonard Marshall at LSU, a defensive end, a, I mean, a, an outstanding player. He was coming off his rookie year, which had been kind of a disappointment. And anyway, when Coach Parcells called and offered me the job, I just asked, if, you know, for a 48 hours, and I called Leonard and just said, hey, Leonard, you know the way I coach. Those guys, you know, might not respond to that. But if I've got one player that's doing what I tell him to do, then maybe we can get some more and then some more. And Leonard said, I'll do anything you tell me to do. And for nine years, that's exactly what Leonard Marshall did. I owe him a lot. Then about my second day there, Phil Sims came in. And Phil said, I want to start working with you. I said, Phil, I haven't written a program for quarterbacks yet, but I'll stay up tonight and have one ready for you if you want to start tomorrow. And he said, nah, heck with that. I want to do what everybody else does. So Phil Sims set a real, a real pattern of work for that team. And then, you know, he would, you know, he would just in conversation, you know, the player grapevine is stronger than any other means of communication. They, you know, he would told a couple of other guys, hey, this is pretty good. You ought to come in and try it. And, you know, they came in, then they told others. And then, you know, it got to, you know, to where we had a bunch of guys. And, um, you know, real players want to have a lot expected of them. Phonies resent pressure. Real players thrive in it. They thrive in pressure because... They want to do their best, and they want a coach who is going to, one, get the best out of them, 
and who is not going to accept less than their best. And luckily, we had a lot of real players there with the Giants. They just, you know, maybe they needed a little help in the strength and conditioning area, and, you know, things went went pretty well. Um, you know, Phil, through a series of misfortunes, you know, he hadn't played very many games in his first four years. I think due to his hard work, not anything that I did, he, then he went four years without missing a game. He would do an off-season program, which is a lot more work, during the season. And that's how hard that Phil Sims worked. And the lifting, the running, they were very challenging, very demanding, and luckily players responded. And so, you know, toughness, Chris, to me, it doesn't have anything to do with, you know, pushing and shoving and trash talking and uh, all that stuff. It just makes me sick. It's, to me, toughness is ignoring the uncontrollables. That's half of it. And by that, I mean, it could be hot, it could be cold, it could be raining, it could be snowing. You get some bad breaks. You're on the road. It's a hostile crowd. The guy you're playing against is really good. You know, all of those things you can't control. And you have to ignore those. They can't become a factor in your performance, but you have to dominate the controllables. And that's your effort. That's your preparation. That's your body language. That's how you support your teammates. You know, do you give up when things are tough? Do you criticize the coaches or do you criticize the other side of the ball? All of those things contribute to losing. And the only time, you know, hard work doesn't guarantee success. The only time the result is guaranteed is when you give up. That's the only guaranteed result. So, anyway, we just had a, a lot of players with the Giants who were hungry for success and thought that improving themselves physically would be something that would help them succeed. And as Coach Parcells told me in my interview with him, he said last year, which was his first year as a head coach, he said, I tried to be head coach of the Giants, and it didn't work out very well. This year, I'm going to be Bill Parcells. And he was apparently, from what the player said, a lot different. You know, a lot more demand. You know, everybody's got all these indoor practice facilities. You know, our our uh, our roof was the sky. If it was raining, we practiced. If it was snowing, we practiced. Didn't matter. Didn't matter. We just we just practiced in it. And I think that contributes to toughness. I really do. And I I think that toughness is an element that's not emphasized enough today in football. Chris, you remember Ronnie a lot. You know the great safety for the 49ers. And I mean, he was truly great. He told Coach Parcells after his, I believe it was after his career was over, he said, those other teams, we knew we'd beat them. But with the Giants, we never were sure because you had too many tough guys on both sides of the ball. With the true definition of toughness, like you said, they controlled the what they could control, their effort, 
their study, uh, working as a team. They controlled what they could control. And ignored the things they couldn't. It's, it, it's so true. And you talk about Phil Simms, coach, and how he took the ball literally and ran with it that first day of the workouts. Now, there's a story that kind of defines work ethic with him, Phil McConkey, and a boxing match in Las Vegas. Can you tell our audience a little bit about that? One year, we played the Cardinals out in Arizona, and then we were going to play the Los Angeles Rams next. So we just stayed out there. I don't remember who it was, but there was a big boxing match in Las Vegas that a bunch of guys went to. A bunch of guys. And this is, you know, in that week that we stayed out there after we beat the Cardinals. Anyway, Sims and McConkey told me, he said, look, you know, we ain't going to that thing. We need to work out. So this is on a Friday night. And, you know, other people in Las Vegas, other people, you know, other guys on the team were, you know, out eating or doing whatever. Sims and McConkey had me find a gym where they could lift and they worked out hard. They were lifted hard that night. And they certainly, they would have had more fun at that boxing match. And they didn't do that. They saw the long-term picture. My respect for those two guys is through the roof. Not just because of that. That just exemplified who they were. Phil, all the time, even even out at the Super Bowl. Now we were on the plane on the way out there. He said, "Now look, John, you got to you got to find us a gym now where we can lift because you know, we practiced at the Rams facility for the Super Bowl, but." You know, the buses would leave pretty soon after practice. They didn't have time to really get in a, a big weight workout. So they would they wanted to go that night. Instead of seeing the lights of Los Angeles, they wanted to go work out. Jim Burt was another one, did the same thing, same thing. Find, we've got to find a gym. We've got to go work out. Now, it's hard to lose when you got guys like that. It's very hard. It certainly shows the importance of setting an example. There were so many guys on that team. To The first one that you mentioned, Leonard Marshall, to Sims and McConkey, George Martin, Harry Carson, j- just players that led by example and doing the little things. How you relate that Sims on the plane out tells you, hey, let, coach, we need to find a gym. Not worried about all the other stuff that's not going to help them on the field when the ball is kicked off on Sunday, but doing all the little things. There was one particular player that led by his actions on the field. He would often hand the ball to the referee after he did something, scored a touchdown, whatever it was. It was Mark Bavaro. Tell us what it was like to coach and work with Mark Bavaro. Well, Mark is one of the toughest guys that you will ever, ever come across, ever. And, you know, Mark didn't say a lot. He never called attention to himself. But we were playing, I think, out in San Diego. And on our teams, you weren't allowed to substitute for yourself. You know, now you see guys, you know, after two plays, they're trotting off, you know, waving to the sideline for their backup to come in, which I don't understand that, but that's the way people do it now. 
but you weren't allowed to do that on our team. So we're playing in San Diego, and Mark comes off the field. You see, he's a little staggering. He's kind of waving. So we knew something was wrong. So when Mark gets to the sidelines, the trainers and doctors are all there waiting on him. When he gets to the sideline, Mark just spits out a mouthful of blood. I mean, it just a whole mouthful of blood. And Mark, what's wrong? He said, I think my jaw's broke. So they opened his mouth, and there was a bone you know, sticking through. And so, you know, every NFL team has to have x-ray facilities available for both teams. You know, every stadium has to have that. But our trainer said, well, look, Mark, we're going to go in and x-ray it, and then, you know, we'll, you know, we'll see from there. He said, uh, stitch it up. They said, no, Mark, we'll, we'll x-ray it, and if you, know, if you can, we'll, we'll stitch it up, and you can go back in the game. He said, stitch it up right now. So right there on the sidelines, they stitched him up, and I think Mark missed, I don't know, three or four plays. Now, that's tough. That's tough. You know, when you've got guys like that that want to compete and win so bad, and that are willing to ignore pain to to do that. I mean, how many guys with a bone sticking through their jaw would have gone back out there? I don't. I don't think it'd have been a hundred percent. I think a lot of guys wouldn't have. But you know, Mark Bavaro did, and there were probably other guys on that team that had done the same thing. Probably a bunch of them. But that's not to detract from Mark. He was a brutally tough but good person. He was a perfect example. You can be tough on the field and be a great person off it. And that's what sports is all about right there. I think so. I mean, you know, football is a sport for hard, tough men. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as you realize the big picture. The big picture being the best player you can be and more important, being the best person you can be. Absolutely. And you had mentioned Ronnie a lot before. Certainly, we can't forget what Mark did on a Monday night in San Francisco, carrying Ronnie Lott and I think the entire San Francisco defense on a huge play that actually turned the momentum of that game and yeah, yeah. Uh, it certainly propelled them. One of the greatest points I've ever seen. And you know what Mark says? Now, this is Mark Bavaro. This is what he said. When this was at a reunion of that 86 team and, and the, uh, the master of ceremonies or what it was Bob Papa who does the giant games on radio. He was talking about one of the greatest plays and one of the greatest efforts in giant history. He said that in part of his introduction of Mark and Mark gets up there and you know what he said? He said, I don't think there was anything special about it. I just attribute it to poor tackling by the 49ers. <laughs> He's carrying half the city of San Francisco. <laughs> you know, guys, that, by the way, you know, to, to be a championship team, you got to have guys that don't care who gets the credit. It's true. You know, Coach Parcells had a signal to Phil Sims that was, that meant, all right, I don't care what, I don't care what your reads are. I don't care how many they have in the box, run the ball. I don't want to hear anything about they were in this defense and, you know, it was an easy throw, run the ball. 
you know, we were good on defense and, you know, it'd reach a point where we knew the other team was not going to be able to score enough to beat us. So we would just run it and run it and run it and run it. And after the game in the, or, you know, in the Monday papers, it would say, well, the Giants won a, a dull 17 to seven a game over the Redskins or whoever without much of a contribution from Phil Sims, who was only seven for 11 for 88 yards. Well, you know, of course, every quarterback would like to throw it about every down, but Phil never had any complaint about that. You know, he could have padded his stats. He could have had many more yards and touchdowns, but he accepted the fact that he was going to be called upon to do what it took to ensure that we won the game. And there were many times now when he had to throw it and throw it and throw it and throw it for us to win. But if it called on him handing it off, it was okay with that. Now, that's all, that guy's a winner. And all those games that we played against the 49ers, you know, we played them 12 times in my nine years with the Giants. We, our players, coaches, nobody ever felt that we were the disadvantage with us having Phil at quarterback and them having Joe Montana. Never felt that they had an edge on us. So that's that's the kind of loyalty that Phil and his toughness, his work ethic, his unselfishness, that's kind of the, the feeling he engendered in his teammates and in his coaches. He did whatever was necessary along with everyone on that team to contribute. What was their role for that particular day or that particular game and find a way to make that happen and audible or adjust if necessary. Yep. But when Paul Sells would tell him or give him that signal, I don't care what, don't throw it. Just run the ball because there is a there comes a point in time when your enemy becomes the clock instead of the other team. So when we reach that point, Parcells was out of it. Do not throw it. Run it. Run it. Run it. Run it. Take as much time off off the clock as you can. So anyway, those were great days and great people to be around. And I will say this, Chris, since. You know a lot about the Giants. I can tell you this, that anybody who at any point in their career was a Giant, when their career is over, they consider themselves a Giant. And that's because of the Merrill family. And if John or Chris or Frank or any of them are listening to this, they won't like it, but they'll just have to take it. Because to the Merrill's, it's not just business. They care about people. And the difference between the Marrows and so many other owners today is the Marrows want no recognition. They want no publicity for the things that they do. And if you happen to find out anything that the Marrows have done to help other people, it's because somebody else talked, not because they did. You know, the recipient might have told people, but not them. There was a player for the Giants back in the 50s and 60s named Jimmy Patton. And I remembered him because he played at Ole Miss, and that was, you know, the team that I pulled for growing up. 
that he was a good player for the Jags. Then a few years after his career ended, Jimmy Patton was killed in a car wreck. Well, he had four children, all of whom were in private schools. Soon after his passing, the receptionist at the school received a phone call, and the caller identified herself as the secretary to Wellington Mayor, the owner of the New York Giants. And she wanted to inquire about tuition rates at the school. So the receptionist said, well, you know, I'll be happy to tell you anything you want to know, but you're up there, and, and the Giants were still in New York at the time. Are, are you planning to move here? I believe the kids were in school in Georgia, I think. I, I'm not sure. Doesn't matter. And said, are you planning to move down here? And she said, no. Mr. Mayor has instructed me to have you send all future tuition bills for the patent children to this office on the condition of complete anonymity. In other words, Jimmy Patton's wife was not to be told. Just that somebody had taken care of the tuition. Now, that's just, you know, nobody knows all the things that the Marrows have done. But I think you can see why that anybody who was ever a giant at the end of their career, when it's all over, they consider themselves a giant. Oh, it's because of that family and as I've told John, that very few people would be worthy successors to his father. Because I thought that he was wearing the shoes of his father pretty well. And he is, he's a wonderful person. And there are things that I know of that, you know, that I really can't tell that they have done to help other people that I just happened to find out about. And John He'd probably be mad enough at me for telling the Jimmy Patton story, but he would really be angry if I told some of these other things that I just happened to find out. But anyway, there's nobody like the Giants, and I'm sure I'm way off topic right now, but I would be remiss in speaking to a Giant fan if I didn't share those things. We appreciate that, Coach, and certainly the Jimmy Patton story defines humility and defines doing what you can for others and doing it without being seen or heard. And that's a very humbling story, certainly. And that's what it's about. It's a family. That's what sports should be about. Mr. Wellington Mayer used to say, once a giant, always a giant. And the guys that were down on their luck or had some real misfortune, you know, they could always go to the giants, go to Mr. Mayer and receive some kind of help. I told if Mr. Mayer or John won, I said that there ought to be a law or a rule in the NFL that you can't start your career with the Giants because you think it's that way everywhere, and it isn't. You know, these owners today, Chris, if they were going to give an elephant some peanuts, they'd have a dozen publicists and three or four photographers. <laughs> and It's true. But the Giants, but the Mariners, if you find out, or if you praise them, they turn red, they're embarrassed, they look away, they don't, they're not comfortable with praise. But if any of them are listening, you have to suck it up and take it. I love that family and appreciate them, what they've done for me and what they've done for all Giants. Coach, when you worked there, you went above and beyond. You you just didn't you know punch the clock and show up and go home. 
there was a couple of things that you did to better your learning and better your knowledge, and it certainly contributed to those Super Bowl titles. It was trips to Russia and Staten Island, New York. Yes, sir. Tell us about how those trips made you a better coach and in turn made the team successful on the field. Well, first of all, in Russia at that time, you know, it was during the time of communism, and success in sports to them was a validation of the superiority of their socialist way of life. So they put all of their resources into space, sport, defense, and the arts. Now, so since their goal was to win more Olympic medals, any research that they did was non-biased. In other words, their, their only goal in research was to find out what worked best. Well, too often in the United States, you see research, it seems to say one thing, but then you see who sponsored the research and you have to kind of question it because it might be the company or the product that has sponsored the research is being lauded as the answer to this problem. So you didn't have that in Russia and they researched everything, every aspect of sport they researched. As part of this exchange program, we were taught by their very best sports scientists and coaches. And what they taught me was a, a long-term system of planning. In other words, how to look out ahead, how to numerically quantify things, how to know what comes next. For example, weightlifters in the United States back years ago would try a routine, and if it worked, they would try it till it didn't work. And their body adapted to it. Then they would get together with their lifting buddies and say, well, all right, what are we going to do now? And one might say, okay, well, I know a, a guy that had success doing this program. So I said, okay, let's try it. And if it didn't work, then it didn't work. And they'd wasted some time. And then they would look for another program. The Russians had a systematic plan of how to train an athlete as he is now and then how to train him as his physical qualities develop. Probably, well, not probably definitely the biggest technical impact on me in my career was I just heard through the, you know, the weightlifting grapevine that there was a Russian coach who had come to North America. That's all. No further information, didn't have his name, didn't anything. So I made as many calls as I could, no luck, no luck, no luck, and finally discovered that it was a coach named Gregory Goldstein, who was, during the time of communism, he was the coach of what was, I believe you said it, Belarusia, and now is the independent country of Belarus. But because he was Jewish, he knew that he would not ever be able to become the national coach in Russia. So anti-Semitism is, is a factor there. Well, it turns out that Mr. Goldstein lived on Staten Island. So I was able then to track him down through whoever told me where he lived. And I started going over there at night after work. and. Mr. Goldstein was glad to share his knowledge, and his knowledge was encyclopedic. 
I mean, it just was so far above anything that that I had access to here in the United States. Then I immediately shared his name with Rob Panarello, who's a physical therapist, and but he also knows as much about strength as anybody. Rob lives on on a uh, Long Island, and he would meet me there at nights. And then Mr. Goldstein worked some nights at the Jewish Community House in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. We would meet him there. And I mean, legal pads started filling up. Then the next person with whom I shared Mr. Goldstein was Al Miller, who was the strength coach of the Broncos. Al started flying out on weekends, and we would have weekend seminars at Giant Stadium with Mr. Goldstein. I bet you I've filled up a dozen legal pads with notes from Mr. Goldstein. And the biggest thing he taught us, Chris, was the systematic manipulation or waving of the volume of work. And by that, I mean that it's not the intensity or the, you know, the heavy weight that you lift that is a, is a problem. It's the amount of work that you do that's the problem. So, for example, tennis is not bad. If you play too much tennis, you might get tennis elbow. You can't live without water, but you can drown in it. You can't live without air, but you can blow away in a hurricane. It's the amount of work that you do rather than the difficulty of the work that you do that leads to overuse injuries and to not only lack of progress, but actually regression. And he told us mathematically how to vary the volume, that is the amount of work we ask our players to do from day to day, week to week, and month to month. And Rob, Al, and I agreed, and we hadn't changed our opinion after all these years, that technically it's the best knowledge we've ever gained, ever, not even close for a second. Rob is not retired. Uh, he's the CEO of Professional Physical Therapy, a huge physical therapy chain in the, you know, in the Northeast. But Al and I retired, and the three of us decided that we wanted to leave a gift of you know the current and future strength coaches, and we've written a book, and I'm not trying to plug it here, but I'll just mention it. It's called The System, Russian Periodization Adapted to the American Strength Coach, and it's kind of our, might say, our parting gift to the profession. It incorporates the principles that Mr. Goldstein taught us, and it's not only in weight training, but in running and jumping, you know, just really everything that a strength coach would need to know to run a very successful program. I'll share this with you. That Mr. Goldstein had Al and I bring him one of our programs. You know, I presented one of mine and Al presented his. And then the next day, Mr. Goldstein was, you know, brought back the programs with his corrections. And he had used a red marker. And I'm telling you, Chris, there was very little left. <laughs> he told us that there was a better way to do everything we were doing. And boy, did he have an impact and an influence because he might say he put the finishing touches 
on the things that we had learned in Russia. He, you might say, he brought them to life and made them real to where you know we could really utilize those principles to the highest degree. Anyway, that's that's the Russia story and the Staten Island story. Mr. Goldstein was what an influence he was on us. What an influence. And it was so much better, so much different than anything we'd done before. And boy, do we owe him a debt of gratitude. Gregory Goldstein. The book is timeless. And all those notes that you and Coach Miller took on those legal pads and all the extra work that you did, it comes through in the book. And I thoroughly enjoy it. Thoroughly enjoy it. And there's a part in there that it breaks it down. And the way you and your co-authors write it, it's simple but effective and a common sense approach. And there's part in there, like each couple of – you talk about the eye of the coach. Yes, in the book. Yes. And I really enjoy that part. Tell us a little bit about how that came to be uh, in your book called The System. Okay. Chris, when I went to Russia, man, I had so many questions to ask them. And when I would ask one of my questions, very often the answer would be that depends on the eye of the coach. And that would make me so mad because I wanted a you know a menu, a recipe, A, B, C, D. I, I wanted a step-by-step answer. And it took me years to realize that they were right. Depends on the eye of the coach. You have to go by what you see. You have to trust your gut, your instincts. Is this weight too heavy for this player? Is his performance today is the best he can do today might not be his all-time best, but it's the best he can do today. And sometimes you just have to tell the player, lighten the weight. Or sometimes, too, you have to tell the player, hey, there's more there. Increase the weight. Or when a player is not running as fast as he usually does, sometimes you can see why. And you know it's not from lack of effort. It's just that his physical capability that day is not at its peak. And so you have to accept that. That's his best for that day. Not his best all time, but best for that day. And we do most of our lifting very explosively. So when the bar is moving really fast, you tell them, okay, instead of working off of 400 is a projected max. Let's bump it up to 410. And we'll work on percentages of 410 instead of 400. Or if the bar is moving really slow, okay, today we're going to have to back it down a little bit. Because the bar needs to move fast. So just those things, all of the eye coach. You have got to go by what your eye and your experience tell you. So those Russian coaches were right. It took me a long time to learn it. I still wish they'd given me a menu, but <laughs> they didn't. <laughs> and what they told me was really the, uh, the better answer. Certainly. You talk about people like Mr. Goldstein, uh, Coach Parcells, 
some of the players, Leonard Marshall, that have had a profound impact on you. And there's three people that that you mentioned as your mentors. Alvin Roy, Louis Rickey, and Clyde Emmerich. Describe what they meant to you as a person and a coach. Well, first of all, I started uh, with Mr. Roy, calling him and and bugging him and going to see him when I was a high school coach. And a great thing I learned from Mr. Roy was, first of all, he treated me like I was somebody, like I was important. And he answered my questions patiently. And this is something they all did, even though, you know, I didn't get to know Mr. Ricky until, and and Mr. Emmerich until I was in college, in college coaching. But they always treated me with respect and and a dignity that I didn't deserve because I was just a little peon and they were, they were the pillars of of the profession. But Mr. Roy in particular, he could coach the marrow of your bone. He could get down inside you better than anybody I've ever seen. And, you know, Mr. Roy was not an imposing person physically, but he just had a way. And I guarantee you, in the players' minds, they were thinking, I'm not going to let this little son of a gun get me. Well, then he had you. When you thought that, he had you. And boy, his workouts were brutal. They were always outside. He always had his weights outside. He said, that's where you play. It's where you need to train. And they were brutal. Mr. Ricky was the strength coach of those great Steeler teams, you know, when they won four Super Bowls in six years. Clyde Emmerich was the first man in history to clean and jerk over 400 at a body weight of under 200. And those three men were so willing to share their knowledge with me. And they treated me the same, whether I was a high school coach in Mississippi, whether I was a college coach, or even when I was in the NFL. They treated me the same. And, you know, the lesson in that is the where you coach has got nothing to do with how good a coach you are or or what kind of person you are. See the resume sometimes of coaches that maybe their whole career was in high school or maybe division two or three football. Well, does that mean I'm a better coach than them because I coached at quote unquote bigger places? Heck no. Just means I had different opportunities. That's all. Mr. Roy, Mr. Ricky and Mr. Emery exemplified that. And they were the same person, whether their team had just won the Super Bowl or whether they had a disastrous season. They were the same person. And that was, again, a great, great lesson for me. Is your self-worth indetermined by your team's record or what, quote-unquote, level you're coaching at? Got nothing to do with it. We have those kids' dreams in our hands. And helping a kid's dream come true is the same whether he's in middle school or whether he's in the NFL. It's the same. It's the same. It's helping kids' dreams come true. I've done a lot of volunteer work since I retired, and those high school kids get my best, just as NFL kids did. It is about me having their dream in my hand, and they deserve my best. Those three men, they are the pillars, they're the founders of this profession. 
And boy, was I ever lucky to have them as my teachers and mentors. I mean, I was so lucky. And the fact that they were such good people was a, a blessing to me. It really shows, first, that there's no room for ego in sports. And second, a humility and just a business-like approach that Coach Roy, Coach Ricky, and Coach Emmerich went about how they coached and how they went about just improving the team. And like you said, they would have the weights outside because you play outside, so you train outside. But also, I think it really is poignant what you said is that they were great people, just like yourself. And it really shows, and that impact is what coaching and being a strength coach is all about. Well, that's that's what I think. And if if you're wrong, we're both wrong. Yeah. I feel exactly the same. Coach, as we're finishing up here, I, I like to call it the two-minute drill because there's a couple series of questions. And if there's someone that's able to handle that, if there's anyone, it's certainly you uh, through your years of coaching and teaching and something we hit upon before we went live is talking about sports and positivity. How can sports play a positive role in the future coach? Well, first of all, is it so many kids today don't have a father at home and the coach can be the strong male figure that every young person, boy, girl, teenager, whatever, he can be the strong male figure that every young person needs. Coaches have the opportunity to help kids believe in themselves. And here's what I mean by that. I think that coaches, teachers, whatever, I think the relationship has to at least begin with some element of fear. And I don't mean fear of, you know, being cruelly punished, but fear of you know, being called out, fear of drawing your displeasure. I never lost that with Coach Parcells in the 11 years I worked for him. I was always worried about, well, what's he thinking? Am I working him hard enough? He doesn't like this. Does he like that? Does he think we're working too hard? Just, is it, does he like the atmosphere in here? And then I think the next step, and I'm getting to this positivity thing, I promise, but the next step is professional respect. So. Oh man, this Coach Jones, boy, he is oh he is hardcore. He doesn't play. But you know, he really knows his stuff and he's helping me improve. I'm getting better. Then the third step is, you know, that Coach Jones, he's hard. He's helping me get better. And you know, he really believes I can do something. He believes I can be good. I used to tell my kids that the capacity for greatness is in everyone. And greatness is doing the best you can at something that helps other people. Doesn't have anything to do with money and fame. But anyway, that third step, you know, this Coach Jones, he believes in me. He really thinks that I can do something. And nobody has ever believed in me like that before. Well, I don't want to let him down. I'm going to do the very best that I can. I don't want to disappoint him. Then the fourth step, the ultimate, is this. Coach Jones is hard. He's helping me. He really believes in me. I don't want to let him down. I like this feeling of doing the best I can. I really like that. I'm going to live my life that way because I don't want to let myself down. That's the ultimate. And there is no timetable 
from going to step one to two to three to four. There's no timetable. It depends on each individual, but in each of my teams, each of my classroom students, as quickly as I could, I developed a plan for each one of them to get from step one to step four, where they believed in themselves and they liked the feeling of doing the best that they can, and they didn't want to let themselves down. So positivity, it's when you like the feeling of doing your best. You want to live your life that way, and you don't want to let yourself down. And then later on in life, it's you don't want to let your wife or your kids or your employees or whatever, you don't want to let anybody down. It starts with not letting yourself down. Exactly. It's all the things that you talk about, being your best, starting with yourself, knowing in terms of what you need to do, whatever profession or support that you're in, and then working from there and being the best for everyone around you, your family, your teammates, and everyone else around you, and doing that humbly. Coach, it's well said. It's well said. Thank you very much. Thank you. you had an impact on players and coaches, so many people through the years. And, and you mentioned Coach Roy, Ricky, and Emmerich, who've had an impact on you. This is a fun question. If we could get everyone together, all those people who we've talked about and who've played and who've had a positive impact on you and vice versa, we can get them together at a reunion. And we can get them at that reunion to one sports event. And we get a tailgate with all them. What would that one sports event be, Coach? Oh, my gosh. You know what? And so we're going to be spectators together at a sports event? Wow. i tell you what I'd like for it to be. I would like for that sports event to be a film or tape of all of those guys, even if it's just a few clips of them at their very best, and just for them to see, for me to see just what their hard work, their dedication, their loyalty, how it paid off for them. Also, in that film, I would want an opportunity to collectively thank every one of them for what they've done for me. But heck no, if I were with those guys, I wouldn't want to be distracted by some other sports event. They would be the event, not some other team or anything. And then I would want to make sure that before this group, you know, broke up that day to be able to hug and shake hands with every one of them and thank them for what they've done for me. Awesome. Coach, what would you like to leave our audience with today? I would say this. That we'll put in terms of weight training. Good coaches coach weights. Great coaches coach people. And there is a huge, huge difference. Coach Parker, you've made a tremendous positive impact on so many. And you continue to do so by helping younger coaches and passing your knowledge to not only help on the field, but also important principles that help anyone off the field. Your humility, work ethic, and character It's demonstrated through your volunteer work and the time you take to help others. Continued success, and thank you for coming on the show. It was truly an honor, Coach. You gave us so many words of wisdom and so many great stories, and your character and your humility really shows in the work that you do. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real privilege 
God bless you and your work to bring about the positive change in people's lives through sports. Take care. To say I'm grateful for the opportunity to interview Coach Parker is an understatement. I really enjoyed his insights and his thoughts from how coaches have an obligation to teach their players how to do their best, have an opportunity to help kids believe in themselves, and that they can help kids' dreams come through. Coach Parker defined what coaching is all about. His perspective of being a good person on and off the field can be summarized by a statement that capacity for greatness is in everyone, and greatness is doing the best you can at something that helps other people. One of my favorites, toughness is ignoring the uncontrollables, dominate the controllables, and that their practice roof was the sky and lifting weights outside, no matter what the conditions were, reflect the characteristics of winning teams on and off the field. His quest for learning has never stopped. He took the initiative to go to Russia to improve, and he filled up many legal pads in Staten Island, New York, with Coach Miller learning from Mr. Gregory Goldstein. He was grateful for his mentors and in turn became an incredible mentor to so many coaches, players, and people. His book that he wrote with Rob Panarello and Coach Al Miller titled The System was a way of giving back. I highly recommend the book as it is a common sense approach filled with decades of knowledge to help anyone looking to improve. And I thoroughly enjoyed his stories about the players and coaches he worked with over the years. Sincere, genuine, caring, and giving. Thank you, Coach Parker, for your time and what you continue to do through your work to make everyone better. We would like to thank Ryan Whittington from the University of Mississippi Marketing and Communications and Coach Duane Carlisle from the Pursuit of Excellence podcast for their help with this interview. Thanks for joining us today. If you like what you heard, we're asking if you share this episode with someone you think might like to hear it, a family member, friend, teammate, coach, anyone who would enjoy the wisdom insights and stories of coach parker for more information on us and what we do visit foundationsofsports.com at instagram facebook linkedin at foundations of sports and on twitter foundation sport we will see you at the next episode and as always best to you and your families